this is a wrap-up of a long series in the book of Revelation, and uh, I've been taking questions. Some of those were to each other, and so I'm going to attempt to answer uh, either, at least uh, a considerable number of those. me in private and I'll attempt to uh, give you that. Show you some verses here, and I don't know if we went through these at all in our study in Revelation or touched on them at all, but they are really crucial in your understanding of the future of Israel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Gabriel speaks to Daniel, and he really gives him a comprehensive view of the future of Israel, and it's all contained in these four verses. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now Daniel is told there are 70 weeks left for your people. Your people is Israel. So in Israel's future, there are 70 weeks left until what? Until we make an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up prophecy until prophecy is complete, and until we anoint the most holy. That's the Messiah. So what he's talking about is there are 70 more weeks until the kingdom of Christ. Now, the word weeks here is an interesting word because it means, it's literally the word sevens. There are 77s, and it isn't the word weeks like we think of weeks. Weeks, as we use the word week, always applies to weeks of days. That's not true with this word. It's, it's more comparable to the word we use today, dozens. You would say, I have two dozen, and I would say two dozen what? Okay? This is the word, this word sevens applies to all kinds of things. And in this particular case, he's talking about years. And so he says there are 70 sevens of years left for Israel, or, else, or in other words, there are 490 years left until the kingdom. Now he gets more specific in the next verse, verse 25. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. Now, he says there are 77s left, 490 years. 
And then he breaks those down. And he says there's going to be uh, seven sevens and then 62 sevens. Uh, after the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, then we find out that the Messiah will be cut off. And so he, he, he sets this up and he says there will be a decree given. Uh, he's speaking, I think, about the decree mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2, where Artaxerxes gives a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. From that decree, there will be 490 years left for Israel. And he says there will be 69 weeks until Messiah is cut off. So that's 483 years until Messiah is cut off. Let me just show you this, if this is going to come up. That's not very good, is it? Seven weeks until Jerusalem is rebuilt. Sixty-two weeks until Messiah is cut off. That's 69 of the weeks, and there's one week left. And that one week is described in verse 27. First of all, look at the end of verse 26. He says, uh, the city will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. That's an interesting statement. Because in 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And he says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. We know from that and, and uh, many other verses that the, the Antichrist, the prince to come, is going to come from Rome. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. This prince who is to come will come out of the revived Roman Empire. And then verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many, he being the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, the Jews, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so we have 69 weeks completed until the cross. One week is left. And he says that week will begin with a covenant between this prince who is to come and the Jewish people, a covenant for seven years. In the middle of that seven years, he will break his covenant with Israel and will come one who makes abomination of desolation in the middle of the week. And so there you have a chart of the future history of Israel. From the time that the decree is made, there will be uh, seven sevens until Jerusalem is rebuilt, 62 sevens until the cross, and one week left. Now what you don't have here in Daniel chapter 9 is the parentheses that I have on my chart. That parentheses comes between verse 26 and 27. And that is the parentheses of the church. The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it tells us that the church is a mystery. It's a mystery because the Old Testament prophets never talked about the church. And so we here we have this 70 weeks of Daniel, 69 are completed until the cross, and we expect the next week, but we don't get that last week. Instead, we get the church, a mystery, a parenthesis. And that last week of Daniel is still to come, and that is the seven-year tribulation period that is still future from today. Now, take your Bible and look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 9 to 11 discusses where Israel is at today and what Israel's future is, and it's an interesting uh, 
three chapters here, but in, in, in Romans chapter 11, at the end of this, this time, notice verse 25. For I do not want you to be, want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Now, he's just talked prior to this about uh, a tree, and uh, he's talked about the olive tree, and he's talked about how the natural branches were taken away and the, the wild branches were grafted in. That was the Gentiles. Israel was set aside, and God brought in the Gentiles. And now he's going to complete that. That's the church, the parenthesis. And then he says here, I want you to, want you to know about this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel will be saved. Where is Israel at in relationship to God today? They are hardened. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says they have a veil over their eyes. The Lord Jesus said to them, they have ears to hear but they can't hear. They have eyes to see but they can't see. They are hardened to the gospel and the reality of who Jesus is. He's their Messiah. They're hardened today. But if you'll notice, he says it's a partial hardening. There are Jewish people today who are believers in Jesus Christ. Where are those people at? They are part of the church. Everybody who's a believer today, a Jewish person who's a believer today, becomes part of the church. The church that has all the, the walls broken down. There's no barriers. There's no Jew or Gentile or any, any separation within the church. And so the Jewish person who is a believer comes into the church today. So there's a partial hardening of Israel until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God fills up what he's doing with the Gentiles. And at that time, we will have the rapture at the end of the church age. And that will initiate the period of time when God will once again be working with Israel in that 70th week. And what's going to happen in that 70th week? Verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved. And that's going to happen in the tribulation period. And we read about it there where they have the 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel going out and all Israel will come to faith in Christ and they will be witnesses around the world and great multitudes will come to Christ during the tribulation period. But it will be the last week in Israel's history. And so Daniel lays it out. It's a very important passage in Daniel chapter 9. He lays out the whole scope of the, of the future of Israel. And what we need to understand today is that we fall in this parenthesis of the church. We are blessed. We are blessed because uh, God really came, or Christ really came to Israel and offered them the kingdom when he came. And that's what, what you read in the Gospels. He came first to the, to the people of Israel and he offered them the kingdom. And because they rejected the kingdom, then he came to us, the Gentiles, and offered it to us. And we enjoy this privilege of faith in Christ. We are the wild olive branches grafted into the olive tree and enjoying the blessing of the roots that go back to Israel. And so at the end of that time, God's going to bless in Israel in the tribulation period and they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, as it says in Zechariah, and they'll come to faith in Christ in the tribulation period. Okay? Now, another question I was asked that sort of goes along with this is to help you understand Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 24, and I'm not going to have time to go through these two chapters, but let me just kind of give you a synopsis of it to kind of give you an understanding, because in, in Matthew chapter 24, 
Jesus and his disciples were coming out of the temple and the, and the disciples said, my, what a wonderful temple. And Jesus said, you know, not one stone is going to stand upon another. This temple is going to be torn down. And that kind of hushed the disciples down and they went out to the Mount of Olives and sat down and they were kind of in a reflective mood. And so they said to the Lord Jesus in verse 3 of Matthew 24, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so they ask him the very questions that we find the answers to in the book of Revelation. When's it going to happen and what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then the Lord Jesus lays it out here in Matthew 24 and 25. It's very fascinating. And he says, in verse, beginning in verse 4, he says, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, there will be famines. There will be earthquakes. Verse 8, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. You will hear about false Christs, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, but that's not the end. That's just the beginning of birth pangs. That's just, uh, what do they call them, Braxton Hicks. Okay, that's just the, uh, the very beginning of it there. That's not the tribulation. And, you know, it's interesting when Christ said this, they had been at peace for years, and the Romans were in charge, and nobody was rebelling. There were no wars going on in the world. And he says, this is what's going to happen. So when you, when you see a war, or you see a famine, or you hear about an earthquake, don't think that that is the tribulation period. He says that's just the beginning of birth pangs. That's just sort of the hint that it's coming. We're close. Then, verse 9 says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and so forth. And he talks about that down to verse 13, he says, but the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Verses 9 to 14, I take to be the first half of the tribulation period. The first three and a half years called the tribulation period. In that time, he says, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Those to, who endure to the end shall be saved. He's not talking about us. He's talking about those who endure to the end of the tribulation will be saved from the tribulation. That's what he's talking about. And so the time when the, the gospel, gospel is going to be preached throughout the world is going to happen during the tribulation period when the Jewish people become the witnesses to carry that gospel of the kingdom around the world. Then, notice verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, flee from Judea. The abomination of desolation. Daniel said that would happen halfway through the week. So the first three and a half years are described, and then in verse 15 he starts describing the great tribulation. The last three and a half years. He says it's going to begin with the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of Jerusalem. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 describes it. He'll set himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's telling the Jewish people, when you see that, you better flee. And verse 17, let those who are on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in their house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are child and, with child and with babes. Verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish people. If it happened on a Sabbath, it wouldn't affect us. That's a Saturday. 
But he's talking to the people of Israel because this is their last week. This is their final week of their future. If it happens on a Sabbath, pray that it won't so, so that it won't affect you. Okay, it's the Jewish people and their Jewish laws. And then verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. It's the great tribulation, and that is the last three and a half years. It's called the great tribulation. Uh, the first three and a half years are called the tribulation. And so understand that distinction. Um, then verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and, and false prophets will arise. Verse 26, If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He's saying to the people of Israel, Don't let somebody say, The Messiah came. And he's over here in, in a closed quarters in, in, in uh, Saudi Arabia somewhere. Don't believe it, because he says the coming of Christ, and he's talking here about the second coming when Christ comes in his glory with his church. He says, you're not going to miss that. It's going to be light like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. You won't miss it. He's not going to sneak up on you. Everybody's going to know it. And he describes it in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. We read about all those things in the book of Revelation. And then at the end, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And that's the glorious coming of Jesus Christ when he comes again to the earth. And then when he defines the wind, look down at verse uh, 36. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. They had asked him, when's this going to happen? And he says, nobody knows. I don't even know. Only the Father knows. And then he says, verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until a flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40, there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now those are interesting verses because those are verses we often hear used related to the rapture. Uh, in the context of this chapter, they really don't apply to the rapture of the church. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the glorious coming of Christ when he comes to the earth. And so if you look carefully at these verses, he says two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The one who's taken is really the one who's taken in judgment. Just as he talks about verse 39, he says, those in the, in the time of the flood did not understand until the flood came and took them away. The one who's going to be taken in this context is going to be the one who's taken in judgment. The one who is left will be left at the end of the tribulation to go into the kingdom with Christ. So it's an interesting uh, sort of twist there. I think we've confused these verses, maybe taken them a little out of context. They certainly apply to the rapture, but in this context, he's not talking, he doesn't mention the church. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the second coming uh, at the end of the tribulation period for them. And then, interestingly enough, chapter 25, he talks about 
the uh, ten virgins, five were ready and five weren't. He talks about the talents and those who used and abused and didn't use properly their talents. And then come to verse 31 of chapter 25. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's going to come back to the earth. He's going to set up the nations, and he's going to put the sheep nations on his right and the goat nations on his left. He's going to prepare those who are going to go into the kingdom and those who are going to be thrown into eternal fire. And notice the condition. This is interesting. Verse 35. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Now that's another passage we sort of take out of context a little bit. Certainly the principle applies to us. But specifically, he's talking here to the nations at the end of the tribulation period. And he's going to base the sheep and the goat nations on how they responded to these my brothers. Now, he's not talking about the church because we won't be here during the tribulation period. Nobody's going to be able to respond to us and give us a drink or anything else. Who's he talking to when he's about when he's talking about these brothers of mine? Well, he's talking about the 144,000 witnesses and the people of Israel who are believers during the tribulation period. They're going to be the witnesses taking the gospel and saying, how do you respond to these witnesses who are bringing the gospel? Did you respond by receiving them and responding to them and accepting them and accepting their message or did you reject them and put them off? That's going to be the basis of judgment when Christ comes back. And so understand this in the context of, of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This incident's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. Those Goat nations, he tells us at the end of chapter 25, will be cast into the eternal fire. Those sheep uh, nations will come with him into his kingdom. And he sets up his kingdom on earth at that time for a thousand years. Okay? If I went too fast, uh, catch me later if I missed you on anything. I'm, I'm going too fast on this, but, but hopefully you'll hang on to something. Um, the most popular question was, what kind of body will we have? We've been talking about the new Jerusalem and the, the new earth, and, and we've been, even been talking about our clothes in the new Jerusalem. And, and everybody's been saying, well, what kind of body am I going to have? You know, am I going to be fat or skinny? Am I going to still have buck teeth? What, what's the deal here? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Now, is that your question? 
Someone will say, how are the dead raised and what's our body going to be like? That's your question, right? How many of you are asking that question? You ready for the answer? Look at verse 36. You fool. Okay, I tried to trap you there. Uh, you silly. You know, he's not, not really, he's not, he's not condemning you for asking that question. He, he's really assuming this question is coming from a skeptic who is sort of uh, mocking the whole idea of a resurrection. That's, that's why he uses this kind of language. But notice what he says. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now, two things stand out very apparently about our future body. Number one, it's going to be distinct from this body. He says, when you, when you plant something, you don't plant what you're going to grow. You plant a seed. You take a little seed and you stick it in the ground and it comes out to be uh, a corn stalk or a wheat, whatever they call those things. I'm not a farmer. Uh, you put an acorn in the ground, you grow a tree. You don't, what you put into the ground, what you sow is not exactly what you're going to get. You don't put a seed in the ground and get a big seed out. And his, his point is... And I like the terminology. When I die, whoever's left around is going to sow my body. This is a seed. You're going to put it in the ground. But it's a seed that's going to produce something far better than this. This body isn't going to come back out of the ground. Not this body. It's going to be different. It's going to be connected with this body in the sense that a seed is connected to what it, what it produces. But it's going to be far different from that. And that's exciting. See, I'm not going to get this body again. Uh, I'm going to get a different body. In fact, he describes it in verse 40, uh, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown perishable. It's raised imperishable. This is a perishable body. I'm going to get an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. This, this body is, is contaminated with sin. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. In that new body, I am going to perfectly reflect God in whose image I am created. A glorious body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. No more disease, no more affliction. Unlimited in power. It is sown a natural body tuned into this world. It is raised a spiritual body tuned into spiritual things. That's exciting. That's the new body we're going to have. It's going to be different from this body. This is just a seed. And he says in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body isn't suited to that kingdom. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. God is going to create a new world, a new Jerusalem, a new environment for us, and we're going to need a new body to fit in there. So it's going to be different from this body, but there's a second thing that's taught here, and that is that it's going to be different. My body is going to be different from your body. I like that. Look at verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. We're not going to be the same. We're not going to look exactly alike. God is into diversity. Everything in this universe is diverse, different. And it's going to be that way in the future. When we get our glorified bodies, they're going to be distinct from each other. You say, are we going to be like Christ? Yes, we are. Are we going to look exactly like Christ? No. We're going to be different. 
Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah and Christ are there. They're all distinct from each other in glorified bodies on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All distinct from each other. Uh, we're not going to lose our personality. We're not going to lose our individuality. We will simply be, you will simply be you minus sin in a glorified body. And that's exciting. And we will be distinct from one another. The, the, the example of that is Christ. Christ rose from the dead in a body. It was the same, and yet it was different. He still had the wounds in his hands, but if you'll read the accounts of his resurrection, sometimes he'd be walking along with people who knew him well, and they couldn't recognize him until he let them recognize him. Very interesting. Uh, he could appear. He could vanish. He could pass through walls. He could pass through the heavens. Apparently, he didn't need oxygen to exist. Uh, he ate, which is encouraging. I don't think he had to, but he ate fish on one occasion. That's the glorified body. And so, if you really want to understand it, you need to look at the resurrection of Christ and, and what he did there. And it's sort of like he's not even, he's not even uh, in any way uh, contained within the dimensions that we know. He, he moves around and vanishes and comes and goes and that's the same kind of body we're going to have in the future that's exciting somebody asked me in relation to that is uh is cremation wrong uh and uh it, you know if, if i donate my body parts to science does that mess up my heavenly body uh well obviously no it doesn't uh in fact uh there's there's nothing sacred about this body the only thing that makes this body sacred is that the Holy Spirit lives in it. Uh, and it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us when it dies, you know, when, when, when the Holy Spirit and I leave, he says this is perishable, weak, and, nat and natural. Uh, when he leaves and I leave, this is biodegradable stuff right here. If you want to burn it, burn it. Uh, whatever you want to do, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference because when enough time goes by, it's going to return to dust. Now, if you really want to get confused, you know, you can think about the fact that, that people who died a long time ago, you know, their bodies have degenerated and degraded and gone back into the soil and their nutrients have returned to the soil and those nutrients have helped to feed plants that have produced fruit and vegetables and then somebody else eats them. And... Uh, sort of cycles that stuff. So you try to put somebody back together who's been around for a long, or been gone for a long time, it gets pretty confusing. That question really arises from the idea that God's going to have to go around, scout around for all the body parts and put everybody back together. And that's not the idea here. That's why he points out to us, this is a seed. This body's just a seed. It's sown in the ground. What comes out is related to this body, but it's not the same body. It's a new body, a glorified body. And so don't get hung up on those things. Uh, you know, don't get, don't get sidetracked by those things. Uh, if, if you choose uh, cremation, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, you're, not, you're not slowing God down or, or hindering what he has for the future at all. Uh, okay? Another question I got was to explain the difference between Hades and Gehenna. And some of you are going, who? Uh, well, that, that, when you read in the Bible... This is kind of confusing. There are two Greek words for the places of judgment. And those are the words. Hades 
is a transliteration of one of them, and Gehenna is the other. Unfortunately, uh, the King James Version, at least, has, has translated both of those terms hell. So you don't get the distinction, but there is a distinction there. Uh, in fact, some people have gone overboard on the distinction, and some people say that Hades is the place where uh, believers and unbelievers went in the Old Testament times, kind of in a holding tank, and then when Christ died, he went to the holding tank and took those out who were believers. And there's all this, this detail about this that I have trouble finding anywhere in Scripture. There, some guys have some, there was some, gra there was some charts I saw explaining all this. And I can't find the verses that support it. Uh, I, I struggle with this quite a bit because there's a lot of people that don't seem to recognize the distinction here. But let me tell it to you uh, for the sake of maybe one of you who asked that question. Because uh, everybody else is looking at me like, you know. Uh, Hades is called a place of torment in Luke chapter 16. It's the place where the rich man went. It says he went to Hades, and he was there in torment, and it was called a place of flames. So Hades is not a holding tank. It's a place of torment and judgment. Gehenna uh, is, a, is a name. It's taken from the valley of Gehenna, which is southwest of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament times, the wicked kings would cause their sons to pass through the fire in the valley of Gehenna. In the time of Christ, it became sort of the trash dump of Jerusalem. They'd take all their trash out there and dump it in the valley of Gehenna, and there was a fire constantly burning in the valley of Gehenna, burning the trash there. And when Christ wanted to identify the place of eternal punishment, he called it Gehenna, the place, the, the trash dump of the universe, if you like, the, the place where the flame continually burns. Now, if you want a simple distinction between these two, when Jesus said, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, he used the word Gehenna. So Gehenna is a place where not only men's souls, but men's bodies will be. That's Gehenna. When, he, when, he, uh, when, when the term uh, Hades is used, it's used in Revelation 20.14 where we read the statement that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is a temporary place. Now the simple distinction is this. Hades is the temporary place of judgment until the great white throne judgment. And those in Hades and Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Gehenna is the lake of fire. It's the permanent place of judgment. It's the place that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 when he talked about the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so that little distinction might help you. Uh, Hades is the temporary place of judgment. Uh, Gehenna is the place of permanent judgment. Now, somebody asked me, where do dead saints go? Uh, that's a simple question. Uh, because dead saints, when, when, a, when, a saint, when a believer dies their spirit immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. Jesus looked at the criminal on the cross and he says, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Uh, Paul was struggling with his own death and he said in Philippians 1.23, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. When a person dies, there's no soul sleep, there's no, no uh, holding tanks. I go immediately to the presence of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul said, I prefer rather to be absent from the body 
and to be at home with the Lord. The moment I am absent from this body, I am in the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm at home with him. That's where a believer goes. Uh, somebody else asked me, uh, are they able to see what's happening on earth? Uh, I don't know. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And when I read that verse, I always think of myself running the race on the track, and I got all these people up in the stands watching me, and they're veterans that have run the race. Maybe they can see it. Maybe there's a little, you know, a little uh, uh, deck up there that you can come out and look. I don't know. But you know, what what's in, interests me is that people ask this question all the time, and I always think to myself, you know, it, it really expresses our human nature because we seem to be more concerned that some person might be watching us up there. The, the possibility of that sort of alarms us far more than the reality that God sees everything and knows everything we do. And so, you know, it's kind of like, it kind of tells us where we're at. You know, it really concerns us that somebody might be watching me. Uh, somebody is watching you. Uh, God is watching. And that should motivate us far more than people. Um, somebody asked me, will we know our loved ones? Yes. But not in the same capacity you do now. Uh, Matthew 22:30 says that in the, rea in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Your marriage is only for this lifetime. It's not eternal. I see some frowns and I see some smiles. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. But... Uh, it's temporary. The marriage in heaven is going to be marriage of the bride, the church with Christ. And, uh, you know, I hear all these, especially these country songs that talk about, you know, getting together with the family and seeing Uncle Harry and all this stuff in heaven. That seems to be the goal of the song is to get back together with your earthly family. That's not going to really be an issue in heaven because the issue in heaven is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see and know people from this lifetime, but we'll all be focused with a different focus up there. It's not going to be we're going to be in our little cliques and family groups up there. We're going to all be uh, together in unity in the family of God. Um, let's see. Uh, somebody asked me, is it really important which view I take on the, the rapture? I mean, is it really important whether I believe it's pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib and trib and, and there are different groups that think different ways. Is it really that big a deal? Well, it's not a big deal when it comes to fellowship. Don't base your fellowship on whether somebody agrees with you on when the rapture is going to happen, for goodness sakes. Prophecy is not the basis for fellowship. Uh, you can find people that agree with you prophetically who are in cults. So don't base fellowship on this. Fellowship is based on faith in Jesus Christ and on who he is. So don't base your fellowship on this. But I think it does make a difference in the way I conduct myself. Uh, at least it does for me. If, if I thought that the, the rapture was going to happen at the end of the tribulation, I would not be looking for the return of Christ. I would be looking for the Antichrist. I would spend most of my time looking at that. And I think it would motivate me personally differently than it does now. Um, because... See, whatever your view is, it's got to, you've got to get prepared for it. And if I knew I was going to go through the tribulation, I would probably be like a lot of Christians are today. They're storing up food. And they're, and they're pouring uh, 
sort of bomb shelters in their yards to go through the tribulation. They're getting ready for that. Whereas if my view is that the first thing that's going to happen is that Jesus is going to come back, then what am I getting ready for? I'm getting ready for Christ to come back. And that's what motivates me. So you've got to get prepared, whatever your view is, and I think it motivates you in a different way. Um, somebody asked me how those left behind will explain the rapture. Um, I don't know. But, but you know, uh, how do people today explain away God? And I, I, I see God everywhere. I look at creation, I see the work of God everywhere, and then I hear somebody say, there's no God. And I say, well, how does that person say that? How, how did people explain away the resurrection of Christ? How are they going to explain away the resurrection of the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation? It's the blindness of Satan is the only explanation we have. Uh, that Satan is going to come in and, and, and blind men. And there are going to be a, a lot of people who know and say, well, yeah, I guess they were taken, I guess they were right. But they're in the middle of the tribulation period, and they're going to have to, if they want to make a stand for Christ, they're going to have to make a stand for Christ. And I think when the uh, Antichrist comes around and says, you either bow down or you die, they're not going to be willing to pay the price, even though they may know that fact. What must occur before the tribulation can begin? Will the temple in Jerusalem have to be rebuilt before Christ could come back? That was the question I was asked. Let me say this. This will help you. The tribulation does not officially begin until the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel. That's when it begins. That's when the clock starts in Daniel chapter 9. So the rapture could happen. There could be a period of time until the tribulation officially begins. So to say that the temple has to be rebuilt prior to that is, is a misnomer. Because the, the rapture could happen today. The temple could be rebuilt before the covenant is, is ever signed. And in fact, you know, it doesn't take long to build a temple. Well, I haven't built a temple. But it doesn't take long to build a building today. And uh, the Jews, certainly with their desire to build a temple, wouldn't take very long. They'd have the finances, and they'd have the, the wherewithal to do that. Um, then there was a last question. That was, where do you see the U.S. prophetically? That's an interesting question. Where do you see the United States prophetically? You know, when you look at, look at the, the, the list of, of kings that are mentioned in the tribulation period, you have the king of the north, which most people think is Russia. You have the king of the south, Egypt. You have the kings of the east, Japan and China, beyond the Euphrates River. And of course, they're north, south, and east of Jerusalem. That's the center of things. Uh, you don't have any king of the west. Uh, you have the Antichrist who is over the Roman Empire. Uh, the United States is really not mentioned in prophecy. It's an interesting silence and it kind of leads you to speculation. It leads you to speculate that apparently the United States will no longer be a world power at that time. You say, well, what happened to the United States? Well, I don't know. There are two options. One is, the one I like best is that we would have revival in the United States and when the rapture happened, the majority of the United States would be gone. There wouldn't be enough left to really be a world power. That's my favorite choice. The second is that the United States would continue on a downward moral degradation until we fall like so many other countries before us that have followed the pattern we're following. And we just sort of morally corrupt ourselves until we fall and we're no longer a world power. 
And so, uh, you know, if you're planning to go through the tribulation, you probably ought to change countries because uh, the United States is probably not going to be a factor during that time.